Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hi everyone, um, as you can tell, I'm a little under the weather currently, but this gave me an opportunity to focus on the podcast episode, so maybe it's a blessing in disguise, but um, I've also been missing for a few months, as you know, I haven't been as prominent, um, and that's because I've kind of just been dealing with a bunch of stuff, and I kind of needed some space, and that's one of the downsides to making a podcast while you are in the thick of all of this. So um, I need a little space and time and I've kind of needed that this last year, which is why it's taking me so long to get these episodes out. So, you know, the other thing I want to say is, and I've said this before, and I'm happy to say it over and over and over again. I am just so, 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 so grateful to all the guests, listeners, and supporters who have been so patient with me as I navigate um, being infertile and having a podcast about infertility. So I want to thank you all so much for your grace. Um, today's episode isn't about me, though. <laughs> it's about Rebecca at Call the Stork on Instagram, and she's here to talk to us about her experience. Full disclosure, uh, we recorded this episode about a year ago. <laughs> I said I was behind. Um, so her circumstances today are obviously a little different than they were about a year ago, but her experience is still very, very valid. We cover quite a bit today, including her multiple autoimmune disorders and how she has gone through six IVF cycles, PRP, endometriosis, excision surgery, disagreements with how to move forward with expanding her family and um, ultimately conceiving naturally. We certainly go over a lot of uh, what she has um, gone through initially in the first part. Um, it's really about her retrievals and IVF. And then the second half of the episode is really breaking things down. Um, she has so, so much to share. And Rebecca has always been so kind and thoughtful. She's always taken time out to check on me and she did so after my laparoscopy. She was always messaging me regularly and letting me know to take it easy and she reminded me to slow down, which I really, really needed to hear. Um, she's just been this really, really amazing, um, awesome support system and one of the really, truly amazing humans I've had the opportunity to meet um, while going through all of this. So. I really hope that you enjoy her story and that you learn a bit from her. And um, I want to thank you all again for your patience. Um, there's, I, I know there's a, a lot that um, needs to come out and I'm so, so sorry for everyone. So more episodes are coming. I'm playing catch up. So stay tuned and um, enjoy the episode. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So 
make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I know. I'm so excited to have you. We have lots to talk about. You have a really wonderful story um, with lots that we can kind of dive into. So thank you for taking time to be with us today. Um, Let's kind of start with um, the beginning. I mean, you have some other things that are more autoimmune that kind of popped up before um, you actually were starting to try to conceive with hypothyroidism psoriasis, ulcerative colitis. Do you think that any of that had anything to do with it? Or what was your experience with managing those um, conditions? Yeah. So it's interesting. I actually didn't know any of that before we started trying. So, okay. So going back, um, my husband and I got married in 2018. We started trying um, in January of 2020, which was my 30th birthday. My husband is six years older, so he's 36 or now he's 38, but at the time, um, and which, well, the first thing I noticed was I had really bad night sweats. Like I had a week where I had night sweats every night and I would wake up and just like, it felt like someone had thrown a cup of water on me. Um, and I was still on birth control at the time. So it was very strange. Um, so then I came off birth control and we started trying, we tried for about six months and I started tracking my ovulation. And when I did that, I just immediately noticed like that I wasn't following, you know, what was expected. Like I was, my ovulation, like my LH would peak after like five or eight days of like, uh, you know, um, having a result right so like it would be like the the circle and then the smiley face and then five eight days later to be the the like flashing smiley face um and then my period would come like eight or nine days later so super short luteal fates and so i already knew that something was wrong um and so i i went to a fertility doctor at nine months of trying which was you know it like you went probably around yourself. seven months. You didn't, you didn't go to your like, didn't OB go to my primary in. care. didn't go to my OB. Mm-mm. Okay. So just smart. Just went straight. And I, you know, it took like six weeks to get in with the doctor, but you know, I just knew something was wrong. And I also had had really bad periods as a girl. Like I, I can remember having a two week long period where I couldn't leave the restroom because I was just changing my pad after my pad, you know, after a tampon, like just couldn't leave. And I would have like really bad blood clots and I would bleed, you know, through my underwear, panty liner, tampon, pajamas, sheets, like just, it was a mess. Um, and so I knew that was a sign that I could have some trouble. Right. Um, so yeah, I just went straight to the fertility doctor our first meeting, we talked about me probably having suspected endometriosis and wanting to be more aggressive with my treatment. Um, And from that first like set of testing, we found out that I had hypothyroidism. And when I learned about hypothyroidism, it just made so much sense because I had had this fatigue and like, 
you know, always felt cold and the mental fog. Um, and I just felt like either that was a normal part of aging or I had a really stressful job or, you know, I, I work, I did work out a lot. So, you know, maybe it's just my body recovering, but, um, it just so many alarm bells went off and I was like, Oh, okay. All these weird symptoms I had made sense. So first it was the hypothyroidism. And then, um, I had COVID from work travel that November and it caused me to have like a rash, which was now I know was psoriasis. Um, and I had had it once before when I had taken the bar exam. So another super stressful time, Um, so that's when I learned about psoriasis and then it wasn't until after our first round of IVF that I found out about the ulcerative colitis. And so what I actually, I know it it was a lot uh, and all within like, you know, six months, like just diagnosis after diagnosis and let alone like what we found out about like diminished variant reserve and poor air quality. Um, but I, now think what happened with me is I had endometriosis from a young age. And so my body was attacking itself. And because my body was attacking itself, I then developed these autoimmune disorders or like, because my body didn't know, you know, what to do with endometriosis. It it knew something was wrong and it was fighting. It then attacked my thyroid, which gave me the hypothyroidism, attacked my skin, gave me the psoriasis and then attacked my colon, gave me ulcerative colitis. So I think it was just this snowball. And I actually, in a way, think it's that my infertility caused these autoimmune conditions. So when you were younger, so let's go back to the endometriosis thing, because I think a lot of us don't know what a normal cycle is because we don't ever talk about it, Mm -hmm. right? Like we talk about how not to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. but we don't ever talk about like what a normal cycle is. Did your, like when your mom or, you know, siblings, um, your sister or something like when they saw that, were they like, Hey, mine aren't like that. Why are yours like that? Or that's unusual. Like, did you guys talk about that? It's, it's a shame. I think so when I was younger, my mom did take me to the doctor and um, they put me on a medicine she told me at the time it wasn't birth control, but it must have been. It must have been at least progesterone um, to stop my periods. And then I, I was on birth controls consistently from when I was like 16, probably. Um, but she never told me that that could impact my, my fertility later. I didn't have any idea. And I was one of three. So I, you know, my mom was able to get pregnant and you know, have children. So I didn't see that from her. And then my sister now can look back and say, Oh yeah, you always had a heavy period. Like I always thought something was going on there, but she didn't tell me at the time. Um, and she had two children, you know, within a few months of trying. So I, again, just didn't think that I would have this problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of us do that where we're like, well, I don't think you know, I don't, I didn't think it was going to be an issue or some of us kind of have this like low level suspicion from the time that we're younger, you know, Murray, my mom yeah. told me that like, she had a really hard time because my mom was 38 when she had me. So she's 
back then she was like older, mm-hmm. you know, um, now that's like kind of yeah. normal. <laughs> but back then um, it was like really weird. And she told me like she, she never thought she could have kids or anything like that. So I kind of had this little running thing, just low level in the back of my mind. Like, I wonder if I'm like my mom, but she never told me about any heavy periods or anything yeah. like that. I didn't know anything about that because, you know, we didn't talk about it. And then I remember having heavy periods. I think we talked about this before when I would have to sit on like during my periods, I'd have to sit on like two towels and sleep on towels at night because, you know, in going to school, I would have to wear a tampon plus a yeah. pad because I like I would just like burn through the tampon. And then like if I didn't have a pad, I would just have accents everywhere. Yeah. But it never registered and then when I was like 16 I had this period where I had my period for six months straight and like my pediatrician was like just take some vitamin c I'm like uh okay and I didn't know any better I was like 16 17 I was like okay and then like probably six months into it I was like okay this is getting really old like it's not going away it's not changing I can't do this every single day and have my period every single day so then my pediatrician finally sent me to um an OBGYN and I remember This experience, although, you know, when you're younger, time seems like it goes by super fast. But I remember going in and sitting at her desk and I maybe spent five, 10 minutes there. And then she just said, here, start some birth control. And then I was on birth control from that point until my early 30s when I thought like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I should come off of it and then think about trying or whatever. Um, But like and then it was never a thought. Nobody asked no, like it was just like, oh, okay. And then I just thought like it was just a weird thing because like you had exercised a lot. I was a gymnast in high school, so I trained a lot. And I'm like, maybe it's because because you always hear your cycle's weird if yeah. you work out a lot. And so I was just like, okay. And since she didn't like the OBGYN didn't mention anything, um, I just let it go. Didn't even think about it. Like, yeah, just was not a thought until like probably my mid 30s when I started to notice like, Hey, we're I'm having trouble, and um, these periods like off the pill are kind of heavy, and they're kind of uncomfortable. And then I was like, oh, but maybe I'm just not used to them because I haven't had like a real period in so long, and I was on birth control or whatever. Um, and so I just kind of was like oblivious to it, which I think is something that we should probably, talk, yeah. you know, like on an annual basis when you go in if we're getting yes. smears or something, that should be something. That we should talk about and be like, oh, hey, like if you've had a history of this, you probably and I'm not saying everybody needs a lap at that time or anything. I'm just saying like, hey, let's just keep that in the back of our mind for if when anything comes up and if we're thinking about conceiving or if you ask that question, I think that's a question that should be asked, too, because that was never asked to me like, hey, are you thinking about conceiving? Are you you know, is that something that's on your mind? If it is. Like, let's, you know, let's kind of explore, make sure, you know, your blood work looks okay, you're healthy or whatever, you know what I mean? But it wasn't. I just wish a doctor had said to me, because I had all the symptoms and it's just like, say the word endometriosis, put it on my mind so that I can research it and decide for myself. But I think, I think one thing that made me think I didn't have it was that you always hear that you, it's like associated with like debilitating periods, like periods where you can't work or you can't yes. go to school. And my cramps were never that bad, right? Like my, I was able to take Tylenol and I felt better and I could go about my day. You know, maybe it wasn't working out those days, but like I could get my, you know, stuff done. And, and, I, and then at the same time, I had a girlfriend who, whose periods were so bad that she was throwing up. And so I was like, oh, my periods aren't that bad. Like, 
you know? And so I think it, that comparison, like, like you said, it's hard to know what's normal for periods. Yeah. And you're so right. Like about that, because same thing, I was, I understood it as emergency room level pain. And like you, I never missed a day of work. I never missed a day of school because of it. It was annoying. I had really, really heavy flow that was like, you know, obnoxious and And embarrassing at times. Yeah. Clothes. Yes. I always wore black clothes. I always had a pair of pants in my car. Mm -hmm. Like I always had a backup just in case so that if something happened, I could always change or whatever. Yeah. But that's also weird. But we didn't know that that was weird, you know? And so I think to your point, um, like it, there's a spectrum of this endometriosis thing and both of us in our minds are, you're, you're only having endometriosis if you're in the emergency room, puking your guts out, right. like level pain. Right. And it's not necessarily the case, yeah. you know, as evidenced by our experiences. Totally. And I think that's a good, that's a good message to get out there is that there are a lot of symptoms. In addition to infertility, the most, the most, like the, the symptom that really told me that I had endometriosis is when we stopped the pill over the next two years, intercourse progressively got more painful. And so that was a symptom that I didn't even know about until, until my doctor said that she suspected I had endometriosis. And then I connected the dots and I, and I knew the longer I was off birth control, the more my disease was progressing. And so that symptom was getting worse and worse. And so that's where I really knew that this was like altering my life. And I had to, at some point, treat it. Yeah. No, you make a good point, too. Because, um, you know, when you're on birth control, it's not affected. Right. And so during that whole time, you know, when you met her husband, you would have had no idea right. that that would be an issue. And then that is kind of alarming when all of a sudden it's like it becomes more and more painful. Um, And I think sometimes, too, sometimes people don't know what to make of it. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it's just like an isolated thing. Maybe, you know, there's an issue with lubrication or something like that. But um, it's I think that's another important point to bring up, too. Yeah, that was super frustrating for my husband. He was like, you know, didn't used to be like this. Like, are you not into me? Yeah, that was hard. Yeah, that is hard. Um, And I think especially when there's not a clear understanding of what's going on, you know, I think once you kind of are like, oh, okay, it's all tied to endometriosis, then you can kind of like calm down and be like, okay, it's not personal. This is a medical issue. It's not me. It's not either of us. It's a medical issue that unfortunately makes these things really difficult, Um, not only to talk about, but I think to just experience and live with. And I don't think people talk about that either on how that affects your personal life. Like, yes, you live with a pain. Yes, your periods are heavy. And, you know, some people have pain, you know, even outside of their periods. But beyond that, just your personal life, your social life and how that can be affected by something like this. I don't think that gets talked about either. You know, so you bring up a really good point. When you say pain outside of your period, another thing that was painful for me was ovulation. I always had, you know, the cramping around ovulation, which I think you kind of anticipate that, but it was, you know, where I felt like I needed a painkiller. And, um, and I also bled always around ovulation, which was weird. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you found out about a lot of different things in a very short amount of time. So yeah. how yeah. how was that processing that? Because, you know, I just like literally the other day put up a post that it 
infertility feels like the universe hates you because you just feel like it's one thing after another, after another, after another, and just keeps coming after you. Like, was that kind of something that was yeah. unexpected? Were you like, whoa? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I had all of these diagnoses coming at me at the same time and it definitely felt like this snowball, like this spiral where my life was all of a sudden unmanageable because I had all of these different doctors. It wasn't like I was just dealing with my fertility doctor. I then had an endocrinologist. I then had a GI doctor. I had the endometriosis specialist. I had, I was getting multiple second opinions on my infertility case. I had my primary care doctor. Of course, I had a dermatologist to help with the psoriasis. It just was all of a sudden, like all of these strings that I'd never had to deal with before. And, you know, all hitting me within six months. Um, I think the hardest part for me was uh, we did so like to continue our story. We had done a medicated cycle and then an IUI and then we moved on to IVF again, just because we were trying to be aggressive about treatment with my infertility or with my endometriosis and our first cycle failed. Like I had 13 andral follicles, which was a good number for someone who, you know, had a low AMH and my AMH at my first fertility visit was 0.8. Um, and for someone who's 32 or 31 at the time, that was, that was low. Um, and so when we had 13 andro follicles, which was a good number for 0.8 AMH. Um, and then they, I just, I was labeled as a poor responder. I didn't respond well to the meds. Um, we ended up retrieving, six, four were mature and fertilized. And then we had zero blasts and zero blasts. I mean, that is just devastating. I mean, it feels like the end of the road. Um, and I think everyone has this expectation that IVF will work. Um, as someone of my age, you think you're going to have multiple blasts. Like you think you're going to get half of the eggs retrieved are going to be blasts. Um, and that, you know, even those blasts, most of them will be normal. Um, and it just was a tough pill to swallow. Um, I just, I mean, I cried for days and days. I think one thing that I would do differently at the time, I mean, I went into that cycle just so optimistic. And I was, I remember being happy the day that I, you know, came in for my retrieval because I just was so excited for the chance. And, um... I just wasn't prepared. Like I needed to have a therapist before that day came because when I got that news, it took me maybe another month to weed through insurance to get them to approve a therapist. Um, and I was just drowning. And you weren't, were you being treated for anything at that time? Was your ulcerative colitis being treated? So my ulcerative colitis actually didn't pop up until Right after I finished that first retrieval, I started getting blood and mucus in my stool and I told my fertility doctor about it and she thought that it was from the antibiotics and she was like, this happens sometimes, it should clear up in two weeks, if it doesn't let me know. And then it just kind of hung around and for the next, we did, we've done six retrievals, but by retrieval four, it was still there. Um, and so I started the process to see, you know, go through a 
primary care provider and then a GI doctor, everyone sort of thought it was a hemorrhoid because I think people think of like the typical ulcerative colitis symptoms are like you're going frequently, you've got diarrhea, you know, you've got an upset stomach, you're in pain. And I didn't have any of that. It was very, I mean, things looked a little different than normal, but it wasn't that. Um, and I wasn't in any pain at all. So it wasn't like I just kind of kept hoping it would resolve on its own. Um, so yeah, that it, but now looking back, the, the triggers for ulcerative colitis are stress, hormones, and antibiotics. So like, of course, my first round <laughs> triggered that for me. And so that's why I think my infertility caused my autoimmune because all of that, that was all triggers. And so I often wonder would I have ulcerative colitis right now if I hadn't gone through IVF? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do they do for the ulcerative colitis? Like, did you talk about like, hey, I'm doing these fertility treatments like this needs to be like, you know, fertility friendly or yeah. was that a co- part of the conversation? That definitely was part of the conversation. So, you know, at first I was taking suppositories and then that didn't work. So then I was taking a foam, which you you, know, you can imagine where you put that. And then um, that didn't work. And I was gearing up for round five and um, it was actually really confusing because for round five, I was also doing ovarian PRP and they were very strict about the, the meds that I could be on for that. And I didn't want for, I didn't want for the ulcerative colitis medicine to interfere. So there were a lot of conversations I had with both sets of doctors to make sure that the meds wouldn't like alter the success or the effectiveness of that procedure. Um, but ultimately they put me on an IV drug called Intivio that is safe for pregnancy because it just targets the um, blood cells that are going to your gut. I, I The other thing about this ulcerative colitis diagnosis is when, so I, had to have a colonoscopy to for them to like look and definitively tell me what that was. Um, and when I did that, they they you know immediately diagnosed it, and then they said, "You need to get in remission." So we're gonna do these different meds until something works. Then you need to be in remission for six months to a year before you can start trying for a baby. And so at that point, <laughs> at that point, I had. For four rounds of IVF, I had one embryo. And so our goal was to bank, I mean, our initial goal was to bank six embryos. We wanted three kids. And, you know, at this point, I was maybe more realistic, like, you know, if we can get three or four. But either way, I knew I had this long journey ahead of me. And to say that I couldn't even try that for another year. And at that point, my AMH was something like 0.36. And so that was just devastating. I mean, I, I, my mind exploded. Like I just was like, I don't know. And I thought at that point about, do we just, okay. So the timeline here is, you know, let's say it takes three months to get into remission. Um, and it did actually, it took three months. Um, and then a year from there, and then we can pick up IVF 
you know, I knew the journey was probably say, say that first round was effective. And then I had a baby nine months later, we're still looking at two years from that point from when I could take home a baby, which is just after two years of trying, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. And so at that point, my husband and I started talking about surrogacy and, you know, yes, we want multiple child children and we aren't giving up the hope that one day I would carry, but you know, he's getting older and do we just want to go ahead and, you know, find a surrogate for our one embryo that we have. Um, and my sister had offered, which is wonderful. Um, but it just, it just was so hard for me because having gone through four rounds of IVF with the AMH I had, I didn't know that I would ever be able to have another blastocyst. Like that could have been our one and only chance for anyone to carry my embryo. And I just wanted to carry a child. And so at that point it was just like, okay, we'll just wait. Like we will just wait however long until I can carry. Um, and so after that conversation, I had my fertility doctor talk to my GI doctor because she agreed that like with my AMH, I could not wait a year to keep, to do retrievals. And so I got approval to keep doing retrievals while I'm getting my body into remission. And we would just wait to transfer until I had been in remission at least six months. So we kind of tapered that down. At that point, I went and got a whole bunch of different opinions. Like I went and met with four more doctors, four more fertility doctors, because, you know, one blast for four rounds is not a good place to be in. And so I just wanted a whole new direction. Um, And it was so great because every new doctor, like I learned something new from every new doctor. Um, I eventually found a doctor who is, is really well known for ovarian PRP And he was just so optimistic. Like he said, I was an easy case, which like given my history, I was like, what are you talking about? But um, it just felt like if I'm an easy case for him, then like this is the person I should be with. Um, But he 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 had said to me that for ovarian PRP, I mean, first of all, no guarantees. He did say a third of women like improve their count, a third of women improve their quality and a third of women, like no reaction. Right. But for the younger women, like the women under 35, and I'm sorry for your audience that that's, you know, most of them are not in that boat, but for the younger women, he said he had not, he had maybe nine or 10 women in my situation and all of them had gotten pregnant. And so I mean, that was just a statistic that I could not look past, right? Like I was like, okay, whatever this costs, we are flying across the country and we're doing this. Um, And I had talked, I had had Healthy IVF share on her account that I was looking for people who had done this and to reach out to me. And that was so helpful. Alyssa is a godsend. And so I had talked to a bunch of women and I mean, they had all kinds of different, um, stories and success rates. But I mean, some of them went from like zero to one blast per round to four or five, like just crazy results. Um, And so 
I felt like from talking to real people, not a study, real people who had done this, I had, I just felt like that gave me the push I needed. And, um, so then with that round, round five, um, I actually, he did a very low dose round. Like he, he believes in almost like natural is best. So like as few hormones as possible. So like I stopped injections on day five. It was very strange. Um, and I only had two eggs retrieved. So I was like, okay, we've already failed. It's day one. Like we're waking up from retrieval and finding two eggs. Like I was just like, okay, well that was a bust. Um, but actually one of them became a blast and it was a four AA. So like way better than anything I had before. Cause I say I had one blast for four rounds. I had three blasts, but two of them were abnormal, but all three blasts were graded about a three CC. So I thought that my body could only produce a three CC. So then to have a four AA, I was just like, well, this is the best quality. Like this is the best result we've had. And even though it's just one blast, like one is so great, right? Like one is, could be a baby, right? Like this is one, like the difference between zero and one is so different. Like it's changing, life changing different. You're like, I can go through as many rounds as possible if I can just get one each time or, you know, one every few times, like just to know I can get one. Um, and so that like really lifted my spirits. Um, and then we were going to transfer. No, I, th- I think at that point we, st- we wanted to try one more round, try and get a third blast before we transfer. Cause we, again, we wanted, we wanted three kids. I was one of three and my husband is one of three. And I think, you know, who knows how you feel after you start having kids, but we wanted a path, right? Like we wanted some possible way to get to three before we start transferring. Um, and so we couldn't afford to go back to San Diego to the same doctor for round six, not even just financially, but like the time commitment that it took from both of us and our work schedules. And my husband works um, his team is in India. So like the time zone difference just didn't, it really didn't work for him. He was starting his work day at 5am when we were in California and it just wasn't sustainable. Um, so anyway, so we did round six back with our main doctor in Atlanta and zero blasts. Um, so we were supposed to transfer right after round six. We had, you know, it was going to be our next cycle And I just panicked because we got zero blast. That was not what I was expecting. I was expecting to replicate the cycle from gen five and to get another blast. And when it didn't, I just was like, okay, like we need to focus on my root cause here, which is endometriosis. And we, you know, either I needed to go on uh, depo Lupron or I need to get the endometriosis surgery because I just felt like I had this level of inflammation in my body that was not going to be healthy for a transfer. Um, and so I knew that there was a risk that my egg quality could tank after that surgery or that I could have scar tissue. And I just, at that felt at that point, I was like, 
you know, my husband's tapped out on IVF rounds. I'm not ready for a transfer. I'm too scared. So I just kind of went with my gut there. And actually a lot of girls in my infertility support group had gone through the surgery and were very supportive. Um, and so I, and, and so I went with the surgery and I'm, I'm so glad I did. I, I went with an expert, um, Kinson Erbo out of the center for endometriosis care, um, in Atlanta and right where I live. Um, and he found stage two endometriosis. He thought it was in 65% of my pelvic area in my bladder. I'm sorry, not in my bladder in my, um, under both ovaries, uh, in between my vagina and my rectum, which probably explains my pain during intercourse, um, in my colon, I had adhesions in the pelvic wall, um, and then in my appendix, and he removed my appendix. Um, and so I asked him about the, the endometriosis on my ovaries because I suspected like that's what was causing my poor egg quality. And he said that it didn't actually matter where it was found, that there, that it was causing inflammation that can affect the entire pelvic region, which infects or affects your reproductive organs. Um, and so he said that his patients have a 60% higher chance of implement, implantation after the surgery. And so I was, I was feeling good about that. The other thing I had the surgeon do is I had him, because while I, I had asked him what he does to prevent scar tissue, and he said that he uses PRP and he sprays it over um, the like excision sites <clears throat> to, to help with healing. And so I asked him, if you're using PRP in the area, do you ever do ovarian PRP? And he had it and he wanted to learn more. And I told him about my experience in San Diego. And he said that he didn't see why he couldn't do it when he was in there. And so, and I asked him, would it be any more money? Like, you know, like what would, what would he charge to do it? And he said, we're, you know, we're already doing the PRP. So I wouldn't charge you anything extra, which was crazy. Cause I had just spent $8,000 to do this <laughs> plus travel in San Diego. Um, but he just threw it in for free. And so I was like, you know, kind of scary because I know I'm going to be his first patient who he's ever done this on. And that's scary, but it's a free service. And I believe in it because I know it worked in round five and he is a, a really skilled surgeon. Um, and so, I mean, that was a scary decision, but I just weighed, weighed my pros and cons. And like, sadly at the time I was just kind of like, well, what good are these ovaries doing me as it, as it is now? Like if, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, there's yeah. some damage, like I haven't really lost much. Right. It's sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, I'm the same I'm, thing when I did PRP. <laughs> right. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Um, but I'm really glad I did it. And, um, so coming out of that surgery and, and we can talk about the recovery from the surgery. I know you went through it too. That was a difficult time, but Right after that, I met with another, I actually was turned away from a fertility clinic, which was really hard, but they said to me, you've already done six rounds of IVF. We don't see that there's going to be any more benefit from a seventh round. We think there's additional risk, which sounds like I did my research about the additional risk and it 
didn't make any sense to me, but um, they said, you know, we, we won't work with you basically. And so I went and found another clinic um, to set up one more round of IVF. Because at the time, again, I was too, I was too scared to transfer without having more embryos banked. Um, and that doctor came up with a whole new diagnosis for me. He thought that I didn't actually even have diminished ovarian reserve because the number of follicles that I had didn't never matched up with my AMH level. Right. And so he thought that really what was going on is my hormones were off kilter and that was causing my, my AMH to look low and what what he was seeing was that I probably had a low LH or like an LH deficiency and his sort of the things that he saw in my case were that I was low body weight and had, you know, a history. I did ballet and cross country and, you know, had been working out. So I had this history of like a low body weight for a long time or had been you know chronically underweight, I guess, in his terms. And which <laughs> it, it kind of goes along with that question that you always hear from fertility doctors, which is, are you a marathon runner? And I always said no. Right. But at the same time, I did these other activities that did still put me in that low, low body weight um, position that no, one, you know, the questioning stopped, right. Stopped too short. Um, but yeah, so that, and then my um, short luteal phase, um, and then the night sweats. Um, so those were all predictors. And then the, the mismatch between the AMH and the LH. I think one thing that was a little bit off that he might've suspected is, or that he typically looks for is, um, that you, that I always had a period. He typically sees people who like lose a period in that, in that position. But then again, like with my endometriosis, that could have just offset that, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, so his his protocol included supplementing my LH, and the way he did that is through HCG, which is chemically similar, but it um, stays in your system longer. So like LH would be out of your system in an hour, HCG would stay in your system for 24 hours. And so he had me take HCG for 30 days for a primer, and then I would continue through a full round of stems. And so I had, I actually had low testosterone. That was another um, like predictor for him. And so I had been on DHEA and in the rounds that I took either testosterone or DHEA had better, I had better outcomes. And so that was like another signal to him that this would be the right protocol for me. Um, but he said that for women in this camp, which is rare, like this is not something that just everyone's going to have, but for the women in this camp, when he gives them HCG, they might jump. He had one patient who jumped from having one follicle every month to then all of a sudden having 33. Oh my gosh. And so, right. And so it felt like a huge gamble, but I was like, okay, sign me up. We've tried everything else. This is a new direction. Let's do it. And so I, I started priming with HCG and I said to him, um, 
you know, I just did this surgery with PRP. I want to take advantage and try on our own, like timed intercourse, at least one cycle after the surgery, just to see if that's all we needed. Right. Um, and he honestly laughed at me and he was kind of like, okay, yeah. Like I've had one patient ever get pregnant during priming, but like, there's no reason you can't try. And so we added, um, letrozole and, a um, trigger shot and, I am now pregnant. That cycle works. Oh my gosh. So we, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. IVF. <laughs> Without IVF, we had a sex baby, which is wild. Um, <laughs> didn't, it's wild. <laughs> it is. It's, it's so wild. I just, after all of that, it just goes to show that if you treat the root cause, then like, you don't need IVF, right? Like, I feel like all these doctors, they push IVF because it seems like this one size fits all approach, but it's ignoring the problem. And so I just feel like through the surgery, through um, ovarian PRP, maybe the, maybe the HCG injections, maybe that added something. I don't know who, who really cares what worked, right? But like, it, we didn't, at the end of the day, need IVF. And, and with my low AMH, I, I hope that gives women hope out there. I mean, it can happen. Yeah. Did you ever retest your AMH after all this, um, this new stuff? That- I, no, I didn't test it with priming, I, um, which it would be, oh, okay. it, because I'm pregnant now, it would be off anyway. Because I'm just wondering if his theory was right with, you know, the yeah. match thing, like it'd be interested Interesting to the see last, whether or not like your AMH came back higher. Yeah, it would be really interesting. The last time that I checked my AMH, it dropped to 0. 0.27. Um, it would be interesting to retest it. And uh, I mean, of course, you know, after we have the baby, I'll retest it again. And I, you know, who knows next time if like maybe we'll do PRP and the HCG again and try again um, for baby number two. Um, but we also still have those two embryos banked. So maybe we go that route. I feel like, and you probably feel this way too, because I have one embryo frozen, right? And it almost feels like it's safer in the bank. Like I'm so afraid to take it out. Like yes. I'm so afraid. Like I feel like, well, Let's just wait for the perfect day, perfect scenario, perfect whatever to like thaw it. Because right now I feel like it's like that whole uh, Schrodinger, I'm going to call it Schrodinger's embryo, where it's like while it's frozen, it's still safe and it still exists. The moment I thaw it, I risk losing it either during the transfer or, you know, through the thaw process or whatever. Um, Like I feel like it's just so much safer sitting in the, yeah. in the freezer, you know, cause you're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to thought until everything's absolutely perfect. I completely agree. No, when we were going to do the transfer before the surgery, I, I completely panicked. I mean, I was in tears. I, they'd given me my transfer protocol. I was supposed to start it and I couldn't start it. Like I just completely panicked. I, I couldn't do it. I just, I was too scared because I felt like, you know, we hadn't treated the problem. And I felt like I was stuck. I was in this place where I couldn't create any more. And what if it failed? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because I have I have just the one embryo, four cycles and just one normal embryo. And like you with a low AMH, I'm like, I don't know how many more of these I have in me. And if I because we talked about transferring and I was like so against it because I was like, look, my AMH is like 0.4 right now. I'm at the time I was 41, I think. Yeah, I was 41. And I was like, I, I don't if I lose this one, I've got nothing. And I'm not ready for donor. And like, I just, I felt like I wanted to keep making, trying to make embryos. But the downside is I'm not made of money. <laughs> so I can't, right. like, I can't do unlimited IVF cycles because it's it's expensive depending on where you are in the country. Right. It's like fifteen to $20,000 a cycle, right? And so right. if you're doing that, you can't do that forever because, I mean, you're going to run out of money. Um, and... I had already, you know, taken out three loans from my previous four cycles. And so I'm like, I I want to make more embryos. I'm not ready to transfer because if that doesn't work, then what? Then we go back to egg retrievals. But then, you know, I'm however many months out from that, right? Because depending, because yeah. I have adenomyosis too, right? So then it's like, are we going to do, right? Like a Lupron Depro thing for a few months or not? And then, and that was before a lap. That was before we even talked about lap, but that's how I, I ended up in like the lap world was that like, oh, mm-hmm. I think you have some polyps. Let's do a hysteroscopy to remove the polyps. I went to do the hysteroscopy and then the uh, my OBGYN who did it was like, your anatomy is weird and I think you have endometriosis. And I'm like, I've been trying to tell you <laughs> that I think that there might be some endometriosis. And he was like, well, I think there's endometriosis. And then that's how I went into this whole lap thing because he's like, your uterus is like, I think there's like scar tissue that's like kind of sticking one end of your uterus to, you know, your cervix. And it's like flipping your uterus upside down. And like, that's not, that's not good. Like, I want to try and see if I can release that scar tissue to kind of flip the uterus back up. And so that's kind of how I ended up there. It was like a complete detour, but the plan was to transfer. And I was just so nervous about it because my thought was oh my gosh if I lose this embryo that's it game over I have nothing like I have zero it's all aren't you so glad that you did the lap and now you understand like a like why you're infertile and b like you know like that you bettered that environment yeah no I think for sure because I was lucky like my lap went very well in that like my cover my recovery wasn't horrible like I hear some of these stories where people like need canes and walkers because they have they're in so much pain like I didn't have that which I'm very very grateful for um so like overall I think my recovery wasn't that bad so considering not everyone's going to have that experience and I know you had a situation with a pineapple or something (laughs) I'm like like, but Yeah, yeah Yeah. So with mine, it, I developed gastritis as a complication and it came up. So I, I had the surgery, spent one night in the hospital. Um, I went home, was taking painkillers and basically just like sleeping through the days. Um, and you know, it wasn't fun, but it was a, you know, what was expected and it was going fine until day five, I had a grapefruit and all of a sudden I just, my stomach fell off and I remember I ordered Mexican for dinner. I 
sounds crazy looking back, but I thought the rice might kind of help soak up the acid. Um, and I took like Tums and like Pepsi AC, like whatever I had at my house that could maybe help. And it just went like the pain went from like a three to a 10 in like an hour. And I ended up in the ER and I mean, I haven't ever been in labor, but I am willing to bet that that was just as painful or more painful. I mean, I was like, it was a life changing amount of pain. Like it really just changed my perspective on even like death. Like I just think about people out in the world who are in this kind of pain with alone or like who don't have someone to take them to the hospital or who, you know, don't have medical care. And I mean, just the amount of time that it took the ER to like figure out what was wrong with me and to like administer the appropriate meds. I mean, it was a lot of pain to sit through and, and, and endure. And yeah, I mean, I definitely questioned at the time whether it was all worth it. Um, I even remember like withering on the ER bed, telling my husband that I didn't want kids that I never wanted to be in that amount of pain again. You know, they figured out it was gastritis. They gave me the right meds and I had another flare. Well, I actually, I actually ended back at the ER. Like I went to the ER Friday night and Saturday morning, um, which Saturday was even scarier because I, I, it made me think that it was going to be like constantly in my life that I had, whatever I had done to my stomach from the pain pills and the surgery, um, had like done irreparable harm. Um, so that was terrifying. But in the weeks after when I figured out the right medicine to be on that I could take at home and, you know, my gut healed, what really triggered my gastritis was probably not the grapefruit, but was stress. And so I had another bout of this half after like a fight with my husband and you know, my mom was like, do you think it's infertility? Like, do you think the stress of infertility is causing this? And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it probably is the stress. So, I mean, just another reminder to like really take care of yourself and, you know, do as, you know, manage your life so that you can take out these stressors. Yeah. I think too, um, another thing that comes up is I don't, and I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for me, I did not expect the amount of stress or emotional stress that this would bring. Like, yep. I knew it'd be hard. I didn't think it was going to be easy, but I think the level of kind of, I don't want to say like emotional turmoil, but like yeah, like the emotional experience that you have, I don't think, like, you know, it's going to yeah. be hard, but I don't think you ever think it's going to be this hard. Absolutely. No, there's a level of grief. First and foremost, I would call it grief, but then also there's depression, there's anxiety. I mean, it's, it's a lot to deal with. And I, when I was deciding whether or not I wanted to ask my sister to be a surrogate, I didn't want to put what I was feeling on somebody else. Like I didn't want them to have the guilt. Like if it didn't work, I didn't want her to feel, and even for, to have someone be a surrogate, they have to do all this testing 
And my sister is seven and a half years older. So even if she wasn't infertile and she was having her two children, she might now discover she's in a very different, you know, situation now. And so I didn't want to put that on somebody else. Um, but I, I talked to this with my therapist and she said, you know, your, your sister had her two children. She, um, she didn't have the, she didn't go through infertility month after month and have the setbacks that you've had. So when she goes through an egg retrieval, there's not going to be this emotional burden on her. It's not going to be the same as it is on you. And like egg donors, when they go through this, like, or if people who are doing like fertility preservation, like they have just a totally different experience than someone who is doing this after infertility. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I feel like, well, and I guess the other question is, since we're kind of talking about this too, is, um, did you, was there a point, cause you did a total of six retrievals, right? Yep. Six retrievals. Okay. So uh, during this amount of time, was there any talk about egg donor? Did anybody bring yeah. it up to you? Like, how did you feel about well, that? Totally. I mean, honestly, my mom suggested adoption before we even went through our first round of IVF. I mean, straight from the get-go, people were asking us about, you know, egg donor and adoption, um, which was super hard to hear. I mean, at the time I was 31 years old and I just felt like there was this complete lack of faith in my body or my ability to figure this problem out and get through it. It just felt like we were giving up at the starting line, um, which is awful. Um, I, I have thought about egg donor a lot. I, my husband and I were initially not on the same page. And I think after round one, I had asked him about it because I wanted, I had no hope, right? I had no hope left after we had had that, you know, failed first cycle, a zero blast. And I just wanted to know that I had a fallback plan. And at that point, he said, you know, I love you. I signed up to be married to you in part because, you know, you're someone who I could see as the mother of my children, but I don't want to have children with a stranger. Like, that's not what I signed up for. I'm happy living child free. And, you know, you're enough for me. You're wonderful. Like, we can have a happy life together. And that was devastating because I always saw children in my life and, you know, I'd be happy to raise his children as my own with a donor. Um, but we were just not on the same page. And so it felt like our only compromise was to keep going forward with IVF. And, and eventually, you know, we had after four rounds, we had one last, I think even, I think it was even after that, I think going into round six, he finally had come around and was willing to look at the donor bank and just see what it looks like, right? Just start to wrap your head around, you know, what, I mean, he knew he wasn't going to look in the magazine and find me out there. Like, <laughs> but like, what does it look like? Is it someone that looks like me? Is it someone with my maybe same personality traits or my education? Like, you know, what I think we were both just trying to wrap our heads around what does this look like? And so we did, we asked our doctor to send us the information for the egg bank 
And I mean, at the time she was like, I'll send it to you, but I don't think you you need it. And so felt good for my doctor to say, yeah, if it, it did. If it felt good to hear, I don't think we're there yet. And, you know, we have those two blasts. So I agreed with her, but I, I just, again, needed that path to three. And I, at the time I was even wrestling with, if we wanted three kids, wouldn't it be better for us to do a donor round and get, you know, embryos that would all be the same mother and father so that they're full siblings. So that even like, if it's, there is some weirdness, but at least they have each other to be full siblings. And, you know, is that, would that be better than having a mixed household uh-huh. for the kids, for the children? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I mean, obviously we didn't, we didn't get there because um, I'm pregnant and we have two. So <laughs> this is the path we're taking, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a hard, hard question um, for people. And I mean, I follow a lot of accounts who have used donor eggs um, just to, to prepare myself. If, if, you know, yep. if we had gone that route, uh-huh. just to wrap my head around how do, how do these women feel about it? Like now that they've done it, I, you would think that someone would come around, right? The second you're a parent, everything changes and you know that, but, uh, to follow these stories is really helpful too. Yeah. I did that too. Cause from the get go, they were talking to me about donor also, but that's because of my age at the time when right. I first started I, my first IVF round, I was 38. 30, yeah, 38. And I had an AMH of 0.5 or something like that. And so my first fertility doctor was like, you should really think about donor. And I'm like, I don't even know, like, what does this even mean? And like, I'd never really heard of it before. And I was like, I just thought, like, can't we just try at least? Like, I don't even, we didn't even try. Like, right. let me like, give give right. me a chance and then and then if it fails then you know okay i guess we could talk about it but i just got here <laughs> like you, you and i just right. met um and so he's like no i'm willing to try i think you know we could do and then his thing was what he told me and it kind of it, it probably felt the same for you too but he kind of was like well most people would turn you away with your amh and at the time it was like 0.5 maybe 0.3 but he's like with your age and your amh and i think my fsh was at like nine or something like that. I think my FSH was around nine, maybe 10. Which is good. Yeah, it's not horrible. It's not like it's, you know, 20 or something like that. Or mine, not that 20 horrible, but yeah. Nine and 13. So yeah, I think that's good. So he was like, I don't know. So it was like kind of negative and I didn't know any better. So I hadn't done the work that you did. I didn't look into all this stuff. I had no idea. Um, and I don't know why I didn't. I think I was just like, oh, I'm just going to leave it in your hands. <laughs> you know, like I was kind of just like whatever about it. Um, but he was like, well, we can try. Like, I'm willing to try. And I'm like, OK, that'd be great. And then it was just like, you know, then the second one, because I just did not like my experience there. And so I went and got a consultation with a second fertility doctor. And she same thing. She was like, well, you're still making blasts, so we can still try as long as we're still making blasts. But she's like, if you look at your report, because I had mine tested, I did genetic testing. And so on my report, she was like, if you look at your report, every single one of these embryos doesn't just have like one genetic mutation or whatever. It was multiple. And it's like lines of like genetic mutation. She's like, 
I don't know. I think you should probably think about donor. Like, here's some information. And she handed me some information on donor. She's like, and she kind of was, um, she didn't really push for IVF. She's like, maybe you should just try IUI. Like, it felt like she didn't like believe in me. Like she didn't, it felt like she was she like, wasn't oh. fighting for you. Yeah. 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 It wasn't like, you know what? We could totally try it and see what happens. And, you know, like it may not work, but was that was pushing for IUI because of your follicle, follicle count? Like, was it just that she I thought you would be I think canceled she, before? I had never like I never had a cancel cycle. I just had the one and I had eight retrieved. I want to say like mm, three fertilized maybe. And then like maybe five were mature, three fertilized, two blasts, and then both were abnormal. I think that's what the first one was. And then I went to her afterwards. I brought all that stuff with me. And then she just, I think, just thought like it was kind of a lost cause kind of thing. Like, oh, save your money, honey. <laughs> just do some IUIs and see what happens. And if it doesn't help, then do. I mean, she didn't say that, but that's what it felt like, you know? Yeah. You know, like, if it doesn't work, then just go to donor. So she was just like, you know, she's like, we could, <clears throat> but maybe we'll try some IUIs first. That's so frustrating at 41. I mean, or whatever age you were. I just... was like 38. It seems like at that point, it's like, well, let's jump straight to IVF and not waste your time. Like, yeah, I, you know, that's that's how I would want to approach it. I mean, obviously, I've my doctor told me to be aggressive. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think, too. I mean, you did some of the work ahead of time. So I think you knew what you were getting into and you kind of had an idea. I had zero idea. And then after that, I just thought I kind of gave up after that, actually, because I was just like, well, I'm kind of like a lost cause. I don't think anybody wants to like help me. I think it's over. I think I, I that's it. I'm like I'm done. And um, so did you the, just you went to two doctors, right? That, and that was well, it. And then so I went to the two doctors and then so the rest of the year I didn't do anything. And then I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, may, maybe I'll try one more time. Let me see what someone else says. Because the first doctor that I had seen, I was told retired. I I now know he's down in Southern California somewhere. Um, but so uh, I did um, I, after like, I don't know, like six to nine months or so, because I think I did that consultation around March and then end of March 2019 uh, or sorry, end of the year 2019. I think I um, towards the end of the year, I put in a request to go back to the original clinic. But because I knew that doctor wasn't there, they had a whole new team of doctors there. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll try a different doctor. So I went to a different doctor and she was like, yeah, we could try another round and um, see what happens. And so um, it was around that time when I did that. And then the um, one of my friends, I told her she was at the time she was 34 turning 35. And I'm like, don't be me, freeze your eggs. I was like, freeze your eggs right, right yes. now. Like, I, she, cause she was at the time she was unattached, no partner, no right. plans or anything. And I was like, well, if you ever had an inkling that you would ever want to freeze your eggs right now, I'm like, totally. and, and I'm like, it's not a guarantee, but at least it's something that you can hang on to. And like, and you wouldn't be like in my position. So I told her, I'm like, right. just at minimum do that. And she was like, okay. So she started looking and then she found someone um, that she wanted to go to. And she's like, I really think you should see this person because they like, they specialize in like over 40. 
I'm like, yeah, but I have my thing here. And it's like at the time they had some deal where you could do for people with low AMH, you could do three retrievals for like the price of one and a half. Like you do three retrievals for like twenty nine thousand dollars or something like that. And I was like, OK, yeah, fine. <laughs> if that means yeah. I try for three times for yeah. that amount of money that like, OK, because otherwise it would have been like 15 ish per yeah. retrieval. And that's like a lot of money. Right. So I was like, OK, I could do that. And then she's like, well, just like, just meet with this person. I really think that you should do it. And I was like, but I'm kind of already like set up and, you know, and mm-hmm. then she was like, just do it. And so I was like, all right, fine. So I did it. And um, I was like, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll keep an open mind. I'll hear what she has to say. And right out of the gate, it was not, hey, you should consider a donor. It was, hey, I work with 40 year olds all the time. You're not old. These are the things we can do. These are the things we could try. And I was like, love that. Oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what I've been waiting to hear. I'm like, that I like, I didn't want to hear because what I was expecting was, oh, look at like right. all this stuff. Like, you probably need a donor. Like, because you know, I'd already done that like two, three other times, right? Like, where they're like, yeah, probably donor, probably donor. So like, that was my expectation. It's like, this person was going to say, yes, donor, you need a donor. I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, fine, but whatever. I'll like, I'll take her word for it and I'll try it. And like the conversation I think was so great. It was like, oh, we could try um, HGH priming. We can do, you know, um, we could think about PRP. We could think about red light. We could think about like, and I'm like, oh, like the, I had no, no one had ever talked to me about this before. And then so I went back to the other doctor just to kind of see what her thoughts were. Right. So I wrote my other doctor back and I was like, hey, I just happened to find out about PRP and HGH priming. What are your thoughts on it? And she was like, well, HGH costs like a thousand dollars. I'm like, I'm about to drop 30. Right. (laughs) I'm like, I'm about to drop 30. Right. Yeah. Throw it in there. Totally. Like, you know, and I was like, yeah, fine. I don't care. Like, and then she was like, okay, well, we could. It's just more expensive. And I'm like, but like, you didn't even offer it. Like, you didn't right. like put it out there as an option. And That's then really this, frustrating. Yeah. And then PRP, she's like, no, I wouldn't do it. There's just not enough information out on it. Yeah. I'm like, but you just told me like donor. So, like, right. my option. So, what do we have to lose here? Is, Right. If my option is donor versus PRP and I'm still not ready to move to donor, then yeah, PRP all the way. Like if if we're going to give my genetics as much um, of a chance as possible, then I want to do the PRP because I thought the same things. You, I was like, these things aren't doing like much for me anyway. I can't make (laughs) it. Right. If we're going to skip to donor, then why not try it? Light it up. (laughs) I had I had the same pushback from my regular fertility doctor in Atlanta. She just didn't trust PRP. There's not the research out there. Didn't you know? She was worried about the risks. I eventually, you know, we. I was very careful when I asked the new doctor about the risks and, and did a lot of research. And eventually, I just felt very comfortable with the risks. Um, but she also pushed back on um, the endometriosis surgery. I had several doctors tell me that the endometriosis surgery was not worth the risk and that IVF had a better success rate with endometriosis. Um, and at the end of the day, like, you know, your body best, you know, the scenario you're in, you can do your own research. I know it feels hard to go against a doctor when, you know, they have so much more experience, but 
I mean, you really are making these decisions for your life. And, you know, sometimes you just have to do what you need to do. Or you find a doctor that better aligns with what you need or yes. want. I, I think that people shouldn't be afraid to do that. Like these guys aren't your best friends. Yes. You know, you're here to work together as a team for a common goal. And for me, that made a difference. For me, you know, I had zero blasts or I had zero normal embryos going into this and then switching doctors. I got one. Um, and yeah. I'm, like, not to say that doctors are miracle workers. It's not fair to put all this pressure on them to you know, like make all these things happen. But I think having what's important is finding one that jives with like your thinking and kind of where you want to go. And if like that jives, then I think that you guys can work well together, then that's wonderful. But if you have one that you're constantly fighting, I don't think that's a good match. And you just need to move on and find someone that is a better match. Um, And I know there are restrictions with insurance. Like if you have insurance coverage, that's really hard, right? Because then you're kind of stuck. I don't have insurance coverage. Like I don't, like our state doesn't have any mandated coverage and my employer doesn't offer it. So I have to pay cash. So the upside, if there is an upside to paying cash, is you can go see whoever you want to see. The downside is it's stupid expensive. Well, I feel like a lot of people feel stuck in their location, right? Like, there are three clinics where I live. I've, you know, been to all of them. None of the three really align with me. Like sometimes finding that the the right doctor means traveling. And that's really hard for people to, you know, afford to fit into their lifestyle. Um, and I mean, hopefully, you know, a round with your local clinic will work, but if it doesn't, like it's worth, it's worth sticking out those doctors who really are experts in what you need. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now back to our episode. Yeah. And align with what you want. I think that's so important that you can work together as a team because like that made all the difference where I didn't feel like I was just like there, (laughs) you know, like the, like the other clinic I was at, I just felt like I was like there. And then they just like threw stuff at you. And then you just kind of were in like this like puppy mill situation, Mm -hmm. you know, where you just like walk down the line. Their standard protocol. And then when it doesn't work, then they're like, well, I don't know what to do with you. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the conversation that happened that really like made me upset because he was he said, oh, hey, you know, your embryos came back abnormal. I don't remember if he called me first or the embryologist. It must have been him. Um, But he called me and uh, and I think because I was at work, I couldn't answer. And he sent me a message and said, you know, sorry, these are abnormal. Let me know what I can do to help you. I don't know. You tell me how you can help me. I, I mean, maybe that should be a phone call. (laughs) Right. Well, and I, and I get it. Like, I'm sure because I, because I missed the call. I'm sure, you know, like he's like, oh, I bet people are anxious. They just want to know what the results were. So I'll send a message kind of thing. Like, I, I can understand that. But at the same point in time, I didn't even get a WTF appointment. Like, I didn't even get an appointment to be like, okay, here's where I think we could go next. Or here's maybe what could be. It was just like, well, let me know. Let me know how I can help you. And I'm like, I 
I don't know. Like, I'm new to this. You've been doing this. And they're like, you know, he's been doing this forever. And he started the program here. And he's really wonderful. And patients love him. I'm like, I don't. I don't love him. I'm like, I'm out. I can't. Like, this is not cool. And I just felt like abandoned at that point. They're like, well, and so that's why I think having a good match is so important because like my current doctor is so great about like always following up on everything. And, you know, even lap, she was like, okay, are we ready to go? Are we ready to go? And I'm like, well, some things came up I have to deal with. Um, But she was just like on it and she's always on it and she's amazing. And so I feel like that's just so important to find a person who matches um, so I, like my main doctor in Atlanta is very that way is calls me off after hours, like will, you know, always have next steps for me, super supportive. And, and so I, that's why I felt like it was so, I did five rounds with her. I mean, even though I wasn't getting results, she was just so supportive that it just felt right. And it was easy. I mean, she was local. Um, but at the end of the day, that wasn't, I mean, I ended up having my best round with a guy who was very short when it came to communication. He knew what was best. He was very direct. Um, So, I mean, it doesn't always, I mean, it's hard to find that doctor who has every, everything. But like, you felt good with him though, but you like, right? Like Um, what he told you about like the statistics and then, cause he was the low stim protocol guy, right? He was the low stim protocol I honestly, I mean, I didn't know if he was just talking the talk. I mean, he was very confident and very direct with what to do and kind of gave off the expression that like he, he knew best because, you know, he's the expert. And, you know, I had all these questions that I, I didn't feel like he was really expanding and on answering. I just knew that I wanted to try ovarian PRP and he was the guy to do it. Like he had done the most he had done it the most of anyone in the u.s and i did really trust you know if i was going to do it that i wanted to do it with the person who had the most experience um but like bedside manner it was not what i had gotten before and so i just didn't know if i was being you know sold a book of goods right like sold a book of sales like i didn't know until we got the results and then I was like okay well it was our best result so Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. yeah I wish I mean I wish he had everything but no (laughs) yeah but that makes it hard too right like I don't know that like for me I don't know if I could handle that for six rounds I mean not that you would need six rounds hopefully but that's that's why I don't feel like I went back to him for round six I just did I I just we did not love the communication at the clinic yeah so like even though it was successful it's not like you were like eager to go back because it's like it's this balance of like results plus like personality slash communication plus plus stress or um trust yes you know like it's really hard to find that balance where you get a little bit of both where they kind of go like outside the box a little bit or be willing to think outside the box a little bit. Right. But then also be supportive enough where not, not like you need a best friend in your fertility doctor, but like at least for someone to hear you and understand what you're saying and not dismiss like your questions or anything like that. You know what I mean? 
Right. And to spend enough time with you that they know your unique history. And like, I just felt like we didn't, I just felt like a number, right? Like I only, I felt like every time I talked to him, I had five, 15 minutes at the max. Um, it just, the whole thing felt rushed. And I know that's cause he has a lot of patience. Um, and that's a good thing, but, um, yeah, it just, it, it didn't feel like the best experience, but I mean, of course I don't regret doing it. Right. 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 Well, I mean, for you, like this process has been so complicated, overwhelming. Um, there's been a lot going on. What do you think has been your biggest struggle? I mean, infertility, it impacts so much of your life. It impacts finances, your work, your marriage, your sex life, your religion. Like it comes at you from every angle. And I knew that. I mean, I knew that about infertility and I just always hoped that we wouldn't be in that camp. And, you know, I started when I was young to try and avoid that, but you know, you can't, you can't avoid it. Like it, it happens. And, um, I feel like, I mean, gosh, so many, there are so, it was hard for so many reasons. I think like what's core to me and like what hurt the most was struggling with my marriage because I, and not that I ever doubted the person that I chose because he's wonderful. He's funny. He's like so supportive. He's definitely the right guy for me of like, like there wouldn't be a better partner to go through this with, but we did have those disagreements where, you know, we felt differently about adoption. We felt differently about egg donor. We felt differently about, you know, living a child free life. And we had to have these hard conversations that I think we, you know, we, we both agreed that we wanted children when we got married and we just thought that we would be able to, right. We just start young enough and we could avoid that. And, um, you know, we had to go through those fights head on and we, you know, I eventually came around to the fact that he loves me so much that I would be enough for him, that he, he would not need to have kids to feel fulfilled with me. And, you know, I, I couldn't leave a man who loves me that much. Right. Like it, but it really tried us. And so, you know, I think that that for sure was the hardest part. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point. No one expects to have this conversation. Like you don't, it's, right. it's not like, cause you have the like kids, no kids conversation, you know, before, you decide you're going to get married or whatever. And like, you're on the same page on that. And you're like, okay, cool. But nobody ever plans to be infertile and then have all these other conversations about adoption or IVF or egg donor or any of that stuff. Like nobody ever plans for that. You cannot plan for this conversation to happen. And you bring up a really good point that that's totally unexpected. So like for that, what do you think would be helpful? Did you guys try like couples therapy or did you just talk it out as much as you could? Like what, what was helpful for you to kind of um, get through some of those disagreements? Cause I'm sure you're not the only one. I'm sure other people right. are facing these same conversations. Yeah. My husband, he was open to couples counseling, but then when it came up to scheduling it, mm-hmm. like he, he never was available, right? Like Mm -hmm. we never actually got to couples counseling. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I don't know how much of that was just like his perception of couples counseling. I'll tell you, we actually 
went to couples counseling one time before um, we had infertility. It was a different uh, issue. And um, I did not jive well with our therapist. And so I was kind of like, we need to find another therapist. She didn't, she didn't address the issue or give us the tools that I felt like we came to her for. And so my husband had a distaste from that. Like, okay, she, she told you what you needed to do and you didn't do it. And so if you're not willing, you know, to work with her, like, why would this, why would this situation be any different? Um, And so I think that was like a hurdle for him, but like in his defense, but I did, I had a therapist and a support group and I met with my therapist probably once every three weeks or, you know, around treatments as I needed them. And so even though he wasn't there, she was able to give me like the tools that I needed to have these conversations. And she was able to help frame things and help dissect conversations that I was having with my husband. And I mean, that was, that was incredible resource. Like I, I definitely recommend therapy for anyone, even if you can't do couples, like even if it's just you going to therapy, it still is super helpful. Yeah. And I think kind of like to what we discussed earlier, a lot of stuff comes up, you know, when you go through these treatments, it's like, it's not just like infertility because you feel like really shitty about infertility. Anyway, you feel like you're less than, you feel like you're not good enough. You feel like you're, you know, all this other stuff, but then you add in, yeah. Yeah. Then you add in the losses from, you know, these failed um, cycles. Yeah. And then the, the stuff that comes up from these failed rounds that you add on to the stuff you were feeling before you even started them. It's like that piles on. And I did not anticipate that. That's what I like didn't expect is the feeling of disappointment, like round after round after round. And then some people, like I've known people who've done 20 rounds, you know what I mean? And that's just like, there's so much that comes up and, you know, people who've done 15 rounds, it's just like, it's, it's a lot to process and it's hard to do on your own. And I, and I think that for the people who didn't expect it, kind of like me, you know, who didn't expect it, they think like, oh, like maybe this is unusual or maybe this is just part of the process. But like you said, I think it's important to get help and support because it's, it's okay to feel overwhelmed, but don't feel overwhelmed alone to the point where you're right. in this like horrible, deep, dark pit by yourself. Like that's not where, you know, anybody. Right. We well, and for those long haulers, I think it's important to have the right support group because, you know, it, it's hard to be in a infertility support group and have person after person come and get pregnant from round one. Like I was in one chat where, you know, I got passed over five times in a row and I just, you know, I had to find another group. And, and so for those long haulers, I mean, I, it really is about finding the other people in this space. And I mean, Instagram has been a great way to find these people, but who understand what it's like to have a failed cycle, because that's a whole nother ball game. Yeah. And like I said, having them like 
over and over again just really sucks. And that's just not even including, like you said, some of the stuff that happens in your personal relationship. Friends, like let's say when your friends get pregnant and then they like then, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of don't want to talk to your friends anymore because they're all getting pregnant and having babies like it's nothing. And then, you know, at work, there's people at work who are getting pregnant and having babies. And then, you know, and then, you know, at home with your marriage or whatever, like that's not even your relatives things. Right. You know, right. Sister-in-law, sisters, you know, yeah. Yeah. It it can be really hard. And that's not like, we're not even talking about that. And for some people, it's this that we're talking about, plus all of that stuff piled on. And it is easy to see how that can be overwhelming quickly. So for sure, getting help, I think is so good. Um, Now, having said that, the negative stuff, what about the positive stuff? Like I know... It's like, I don't want to be one of those, like, there's always a silver lining or whatever, Mm -hmm, but of, of all this stuff, what I don't want to like have a conversation of all negative stuff. (laughs) Like what is, what is something good that came out of all of this? Yeah. So, well, for one, of course, my marriage is stronger. I always loved, adored my husband, um, but we just weren't tested in the way that we we've been. Um, and so like, there's just no question, neither one of us are going anywhere and that that's great. Um, I think I actually have vasovagal, which means that I have like a fear of blood and needles. And so when I get my blood drawn, I typically faint or I did honestly every single time before IVF and I've had to learn how to distract myself So having a second person in the room and like, I'll lay down now because it's impossible to faint if you're laying down. Um, So I've learned these tools to help myself, like just give blood. And like, that's so like, you can't get through IVF without giving blood. It's just part of the process. Um, I've done it so many times right now. Yeah. Getting, but getting a shot, I could, I could stomach It's It's the blood that really bothers me. Um, But I've learned these tools and I just feel like, that's going to help me be a better mom. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to see it. Right. Like <laughs> I'm going to be nurse mom. Um, and so like, I'm grateful that I've been forced to like learn how to deal with that. Um, I also just my outlook on kids, like before IVF, I was, I was young, right. I thought kids were sort of something everyone does, like it's necessary part of life or not necessary, certainly, but something that I thought I grew up with a family. I would want, I would want to have a family, but I was so career motivated and I, you know, was kind of like, you know, we'll have that after we'll have them in daycare. We'll have the nanny come after school and just, they would fit into my life and not my life would be about them. And now I just have this whole nother perspective of, you know, just having grieved for so long over wanting children. And, you know, I just know that when I have a child, I will put so much more attention on them before having gone through this, right? Like I'm not taking anything for granted now. Um, and I think, you know, my my children are going to be so lucky. All of, our, all of us who are able to have children at the end of this those children will be so much more cared for, right? Because of what we've gone through. I shouldn't say more cared for because I know (laughs) other people out there, you know, love their children regardless. But uh, for me personally, it has really changed my perspective. Um, 
And then I also think just like empathy for others, because I have all of these invisible illnesses, like so many invisible illnesses here. And it's, it's so wild to, to have one and be so young and look so healthy, but then have like this huge burden, this huge burden on my plate. And I, I mean, I'm just so much more aware to like what other people are going through. And like, I know the questions to ask now, I know how to check in with somebody. Um, whereas, you know, I just don't think I had an appreciation for that before. Lastly, just like helping others. Like, I think this process, like I have through my support groups, I've gotten help. Like every time I share something, I, there's been someone to help me get through it, but now I'm at a place to share like what's been helpful for, for me. And I can tell you, I have three or four friends doing egg retrievals, right. Who've, who've been encouraged from learning my story. Right. And, uh, and you know, I just, it, if I can help anyone by sharing my story, I'm glad to do it. Like, yeah, of course. Well, and I have to say, you've been really supportive of me also. Like you check in with me all the time and like yeah. you're sharing, like I think even before this, you were like, hey, heads up, this is what's happening. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm hopeful for you. And you're like, they're cheering people on. I, I think that that's so wonderful. Um, and I think that this kind of does that to you, right? Because you kind of know yeah. what that's like. And you're like, I don't want anybody to have to do this like alone. And you don't like right. know what that feels like. And it can be to, so lonely. Yeah. Yes. And in your personal life, it's really hard to find a friend who really understands like yes. what that's like. And so when you kind of turn to this space, everybody understands because everybody's gone through it at least right. one time or whatever. And they know that feeling. And particularly right. for like the lap, I remember when I was like, okay, give me the scoop. <laughs> what I need to know and you're like don't eat a grapefruit I was like God I was like don't don't eat a grapefruit but I also like with you 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 it to me it looked like you were bouncing back so quickly and I I mean I was still bloated a month out and you know still very much recovering and so I just Uh I my message to you was like don't rush going back to life like yes it's okay that that. you can't you know, exercise how you were exercising before. Like, it's okay yes. if you can't even walk down the block. Like, yes. you know, your, your body has been through a lot and you yes. and you need that time to recover. Yes. And I, I needed that because I, uh, like you said, I kind of was like a little too soon to get back to certain things. Yeah. And I felt it, like I felt it a few days later. And I remember thinking like, oh, okay, this is what she was talking about. I was like, yeah. okay, I'll slow down. I was like, cause yeah. I was just like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I think I'm okay. And so I was like walking a lot more and I'd like hopped on my bike and I think oh, we're gosh. like, well, me. Yeah, no, <laughs> I just, I feel like a lot of us have this, uh, me personally, like I'm a planner, like I'm a very can do yes. person. I've always got, you know, things in the works. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's been so hard with IVF and all of these challenges for our body is that like Mm -hmm. our body is not able to do, you know, everything we've got planned, right? Everything that's on our to-do list. And it's about respecting that body that you're in and, and, you know, giving it what it needs so that in the long run, you're able to do all of those things on your to-do list. Yeah. And that was so true because that is my problem is I, I don't do a good job of slowing down. I don't do a good job of 
stopping. I'm like, go, go, go all the time. Yeah. And so that was really good to hear is, is to be like, hey, by the way, like <laughs> easy sister, slow <laughs> yeah. down. I'm like, but I feel pretty good. I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to keep going. You're like, mm, but like, I've kind of done this before. So maybe slow down. I'm like, okay, fine. And then so sure enough, like a couple days, like especially that first week, like a couple days into it, I was like, oh, okay, that's a lot. And then I ended up slowing down, sitting down. I had my heating pad on um, and that was a lot better. But definitely like in the beginning, because I was so worried about the gas pain. I was worried about the constipation. I was worried about um, the bloating, like just getting some of that like gas out. And so I was, I remember at the, um, when I was getting my discharge instructions, they're like walk to get rid of the gas. And I remember when I put up that post about the lap, everyone's like, oh my gosh, that gas pain is really, really bad. And the constipation is really, really bad. So like do what you can to, to help it. And so I started stool softeners right away. And like, um, I was trying to move to get the gas pain out. And I took like the gas X stuff that I think everyone told me to, to take mm-hmm. to. So I did all of that, but I was just so afraid of that gas pain coming on that I was like, I got to move. I got to move. I got to move. And then I think I just did way too much in the beginning. Yeah. Sure. Did you, like two weeks. Did you feel like you had bad gas pain? Mm-mm. Nope. Yeah. So then <laughs> what, I'm you know, like, like I think that only applies if you're having the pain, right? Like if, yeah. if not. Then well, I was so worried. So I did like, I just did whatever. I'm like, everyone send me your tips. Yeah. I just wrote them all down, did what everyone told me to do. Yeah. No, I had, I did this. I mean, I did the same. Like I took the gas X every day and I took the uh-huh. stool softeners. Um, but like, I never had a problem with constipation. Maybe it's my ulcerative colitis, but I just, yeah, I was just nothing changed. And so I was, I was okay I too. Although I will say, cause I don't, did you have to do a colon prep before yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah, <laughs> I did too. And I think that's probably why, cause I didn't have, I didn't have a bowel movement for like, I don't know, five, six days. And they're like, that's normal. And I was like, right. No, cause sure? there's nothing to, yeah. to you've got nothing like, in your system. Yeah. yeah so like, Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. And then, you know, sure enough, it's fine. I was like, maybe this is the constipation everyone was talking about. I was like, so worried about it. And then yeah. like, no, it's fine. And so I was like, okay, but for sure, I think having someone like in your tribe, like you, who is there to support you and just like slow you down. Cause no one, I mean, like people in your personal life will do that, but like, I'm like, I, I think um, like my friends were like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. They're like, Oh, cool. But I wasn't, yeah, they don't know. They have no idea how intense the surgery actually is. Yeah. Right. And I don't, so, I say intense. I don't want to scare anyone from doing it right. because again, like life changing, it's, it was so great for me, but yeah, it is, a, it's, you know, the, the recovery process should be respected. Yes. A hundred percent. And I think too, cause my doctor kept reminding me beforehand, cause he was like, really careful to be like, this is major surgery. He's like, he was careful to tell me like, this is major surgery. Things can go wrong. I want you to understand that, that it's not just like a, like a, you know, a surgery that you can just do. It's not like, you know, taking a mole off like, Oh, no big deal. You know what I mean? He was like, I really want you to understand that this is a very major and serious surgery. And like, there are risk, possible risks and complications, and you have to respect that. I'm like, I totally get it. Because I think he didn't want me to feel rushed to be like, oh, no big deal. Just do it. Um, and so he very, very, was very strict about that and said, you know, I want you to be able to do. And so I took time off work. I took the max time off work, and he was totally fine with that. 
And so I did that where I think the normal me would have been like, oh, well, I think a week is good. I'll just go back after a week. And, you know, but then I I did I tried really hard to kind of just take it easy for that. And I did slow down kind of midway (laughs) because I learned from everyone that like, oh, too much. But there's a spectrum of recovery. Like I said, there's people who can't even get up and walk. They need walkers, canes, things like that. And then, you know, I'm like on the rare end of the spectrum, I think, where I kind of was pretty fortunate. Yeah, that was the wild thing for me is just the range of recovery. Like I put a poll on my page to say, you know, how much time did you take off work? Because I wanted to be able to take that time, whatever I needed. And I had people say they went to a concert three days later. And then I had people say, you know, they took three days off or three weeks off of work and really felt like they could have used the fourth week. Like, I mean, the, it was just such a wide range of recovery. And, you know, people woke up and said, you know, they had parts of their bowel removed and, you know, it, it just became a much more intense surgery. And that was such, mm-hmm. that's the scary thing going into the surgery is you just don't know what to expect. Like you have right. no idea what you're going to wake up to. Right. And, you know, that that's really the hardest part of the surgery. Yeah, because there was a, a talk about if because um, they were going to have him look at my tubes and if my tubes looked wonky, then they were going to take my tubes. Right. And so and that's yeah. huge. Yeah. And because then that takes away all right, like of your all hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then it's all it's all IVF all the way all the time. Right. That's the only way. And so I was really panicked about it going in and I really wanted him to talk to my fertility doctor, but they just were not able to connect. And he was like, why are you so worried about it? I'm like, I just, I feel like this is a major thing that like you guys should be on the same page on. And he was like, no, I got it. Like, I know, I know when to take them and when to keep them. And I was like, okay, here we go. And literally like before they don't me back, you don't want to keep tubes if they're damaged. I mean, that that's, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough pill to swallow because you know what that means but yes if they're damaged i mean they got they have right. to take them i mean they're yes not gonna be able to get pregnant with damage right it's just gonna make the problem bigger like this is just gonna add another issue to your right like issue. even if you do a transfer and you're yes you have those damaged tubes that's not yeah. gonna take it it does make the problem worse right so i was like Okay, then I guess I guess we're fine. But I mean, like, it's still it's hard. I mean, you're giving a lot of faith to this person. I mean, this is huge. And then because you go to sleep and you have no idea what they're going to do because it's just whatever they find in there. Right. It's one of the things going into it. You have no idea what the plan is because the plan is to go in and take out whatever they see, which can include, like you said, bowel. You know, he's like small chance that if I go in there and I see that your bowels all messed up with endometriosis, I'm going to have to take a portion of it out and you're going to be left with a colostomy bag. And I'm like, right. And having ulcerative colitis, I thought that was going to be me. I really thought I was going to wake up with a bag. Not, not I really thought, but I just, yeah, that, that was my fear of. Yeah. 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 And so like knowing all of that, you're like, oh, great. What am I going to wake up to? I don't like, I don't know what that's. And then all of a sudden you're asleep. And I was in a room full of people and like, the anesthesia team was like, okay, he was kind of dismissive. And I was like, kind of talking. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hush kind of thing. Like he <laughs> usually, the, usually the anesthesiologist, I think he was like, shut up. But the anesthesiologist um, usually will be like, hey, I'm going to put this medication in, take a deep breath. Everything's fine. Right. They usually and try I, and distract you yeah, for me because so, maybe because I have vasovagal and I'm, I'm such a baby about it. 
Well, and then, so, you know, like my arm was like, you know, behind me or somewhere, you know, strapped down. Like I had like, I'm not kidding. Seven people strapping me to this table. Right. I didn't know mm-hmm. who was where and anything. Yeah. And so they were already pushing stuff in me and I'm like, cause I felt loopy and I was like, oh, something went yeah. in. And I'm like, yeah, but like, usually they tell me. And oh, yeah. so I was like, Hey, did you? And so I had a um, CRNA a nurse anesthetist and I was like, dude, man, talk to me. <laughs> like, yeah, talk me through me this. Know. Yeah. yeah. Like, let me know what's happening. I'm already anxious. And um, there was a anesthesia tech that was nearby and he was kind of talking to me. I'm like, did something go in? He's like, yeah. And then they threw the mask over me and then I was like out. Right. Yeah, but it's it, a lot happens in a short amount of time and it can be really unnerving, you know, when you, you're not quite sure what's happening. And then when I came out, the first thing I asked was like, do I have my tubes? Right. <laughs> that was the first thing I asked. I was like, do I have my tubes? He's like, yes, you have your tubes. And I was like, oh, OK, good. <laughs> you know, But yeah. it is like afterwards, like I remember coming out of recovery. It was really uncomfortable for me, like that in the hospital right out of yeah. Um, surgery and coming out of anesthesia, I was like yelling. I was uncomfortable, which is yeah, like, I, unlike me. I remember them rolling me from the surgery room back to the ICU room. And I felt like a car was on my chest. Like I just felt all of this pressure. And I just remember saying, help, 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 help. Like that's all I could get out was just, I was in so much pain. And I guess, I don't know if like I was in between like they just needed to get me to the ICU room to give me the painkiller because as soon as I was in that room, everything was okay again. But that, what an awful feeling that is waking up. Yeah, I mine was in like the lower abdomen. And I remember just like yelling. I was like, ah, ah. And then somewhere in between there is, I have to pee. <laughs> so it was, ah, <laughs> oh, I don't, ah, yeah. I ah, think I had a pee. A, a, Cag. I don't. Yes, but they, t- I think they took you. it out. They took it out before. Well, mine was surgery. Yeah, mine wasn't still in. Mine was already out. And so maybe mine was. I don't know if they. I it was in for surgery, but by the time I woke up from surgery, it was in. Yeah, they. I think they usually put it in when you're out because it's uncomfortable. It's kind of a weird feeling right. too. And so I remember it wasn't in. And then I'm sure once they put me out, they put it in. But I remember coming out, it wasn't in, but I just remember yelling, I have to pee. And it must have been just because the catheter had come out and, you know, I probably had that sensation. (laughs) I just remember yelling two things. I have to pee and ah, ah, ah. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then they're like, what hurts? And I'm like, it hurts down here. It was like this, one of the incisions was really bothering me. And they're like, oh, it's because we had to stitch something to something. I don't know what. But I remember thinking like that was really, really uncomfortable. And I was sitting there and I kept like needing to put pressure on it to make it feel better. And I wanted to flip over. Like I wanted to flip over onto that side. And they're like, stop moving. I'm like, I can't. It hurts. I need to like flip over and put pressure on it. And then so they got me like some hot packs and like an abdominal binder to kind of like. Yeah, I woke up with the binder on. So maybe that helped me. Yeah. So that was was kind of. I was a bit of a mess when I came out. Not like when <laughs> yeah, I was, I was definitely out. a mess. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, definitely a mess. Yeah, I was just like yelling and I'm like, what? And I remember thinking like my throat was sore because they took the breathing tube out. Mm-hmm. So I remember yeah. that and my, my voice was raspy. Like it was raspy and hoarse. What I like the weirdest thing for me was that my eyes were blurry because I guess oh. they had put like an anti-nausea uh, patch, patch on, yeah. behind my behind my ear 
And that, I mean, I had blurry vision for a few days. Like it didn't immediately go away. Yeah. It was, I mean, they, I told them that my eyes were blurry and they took the patch off and they were like, it's going to take a little time. And yeah, but that was, I, I mean, I have, I have, I'm blessed to have perfect vision. And so when that happened, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is awful. It, yeah. it, it was like giving me migraines that it was so blurry. Yeah. I, um, they had me put mine on the night before at home. So they, they're like, put the patch on, you were wearing that. Yeah. <clears throat> they said, put it on the night before. I wish that I had, because the morning of the procedure, they did a blood prick for me. And I told oh. them that I told them that I, you know, have vasovagal and then I yeah. need to, or that I faint and that I should do this lying down. And the, the nurse was like, it's just a pr- blood prick. It'll be really quick. She just went ahead and did it. And then sure enough, I fainted. <laughs> and I, I was just kind of like, you know, I told you this and my husband was there supporting me. Like she will yeah. faint. And then he's the one picking me up, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, it was because, I mean, I was so empty. Like I had nothing in my system. Yes. I felt so weak. Yeah. And so I think that having that anti-nausea thing in that state would have really helped me. Yeah. So I, I got that the night before. Um, so I put that on and then they had me take, I think, um, gabapentin the night before as well. Um, I took a few oh, I medications. Yeah. They had me take a few medications the night before. <clears throat> and then the morning of, they, I think they gave me some Tylenol and then some more gabapentin. And then that was it. And I kept the patch on. And then they said to, for me, I think I removed the patch 24 hours after. So I think the next morning when I got up, I took the patch off. And then they gave me anti-nausea medication, but I didn't really need it. Um, Yeah, I I did pretty good. My patch came off when I had my post-op meeting with the doctor, which was the next morning. Um, I did... I did end up taking, they gave me Finnergan, which was the anti-nausea, but I didn't take it until I had the gastritis. And then when I had the gastritis, I got, I, I had taken all the meds that I had, like, you know, the anti acid, the peptide, all this stuff. And then I threw up. And so once I threw up, I was like, well, I can't, the meds aren't going to work because now I'm throwing up. And so because I had had that Finnergan from the surgery, I took the Finnegan, Finnergan and then I was able to hold down the, the, the meds. And so that was like huge to have on hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting. This lap recovery is so different for so many people, but yeah. I don't, I don't know what your doctor told me, but my doctor was like, well, you'll be sore for a little while, but you'll probably be normal by about four weeks. He's like, that's yeah. what he told me. But I didn't know, like, if I'd had cramping or not, but he's like, you might have some bleeding, but like it, there shouldn't be like a lot of bleeding. And I didn't have very much bleeding. I had very minimal bleeding because I had the hysteroscopy too. And they removed a polyp. Um, so I had that done. So is that, um, and then like, I had some cramping for sure. Like, um, like, oh my gosh, coughing and sneezing, the worst thing to ever happen <laughs> during recovery. So painful. I- Unfortunately, my period came two days later and that was super painful because I was like, everything was still sore and yeah, it was hard to keep, you know, to take care of myself. I was busy sleeping all day. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, he put me on progesterone pills, I think beforehand and I'm still on them. Mm, So I haven't had the first period and I heard 
the first period is like horrible. Like it hurts a lot oh, wow. after lap. Yeah, it. My period. It, I wasn't. I was on day twenty one or twenty two of my cycle when I had the surgery, so it came mm-hmm. really early for me. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. it to come that early. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was really smart. And I will say, I mean, that one was awful just because any cramping I had, like everything right. hurt. Yes. Um, but the next one was not that bad. It was a little bit heavy, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. I, I remember being like pleasantly surprised. Yeah. 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 Well, I have some questions here from people okay. that let's do uh, it. were submitted. So let's go over these questions. Okay. <clears throat> um, have you tried human growth hormone? Uh, some doctors don't prescribe this for endometriosis. Oh, good question. I have done it. I started it after the first cycle failed. I wanted to do anything and everything I could to increase my chances. So I did that. And I I actually thought it was interesting. The dose that I did was, I think it was like four units a day for just during stems. And then when I went to the new clinic, they had me do 25 units a day for like the month before stems. So it was a very different dose. And when I did it the second time around, I I noticed like the, the only symptom I noticed was that my hair was really greasy which was just like, okay, I guess it's working. It's doing something. I mean, that was a very interesting um, symptom. Um, but yeah, I did. I did try it. I figured, I figured why not? Yeah. I think mine was 25 units uh, starting day one of stims and then um, up until last day of stims. Yeah. I, 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 I felt good about doing it before stems. Like I really felt like it, it's more beneficial if it's priming those eggs, you know, as they're maturing, like through the whole three month. So that just felt right for me. I don't know, like 25 sounds like a lot. So I don't know if there's some other dose that's more ideal, but. Yeah. And I know some people uh, waiting for baby wonder, Monica, um, I think she did hers for a month beforehand, but I don't know what her dose was. I, I want to say she did it a month beforehand. I have to go back and see. But I think she's there's there's some people who will prime for um, a month beforehand or something. And I, I don't know the the reason for that. I, I, I guess I should try and see if I can find out. But um, but yeah, so I think some people will do it before that. But I've always done it like with my stems. Um, okay. Yeah. Next question. And I'm, oh, comparing, com- yeah, comparing cycles. I mean, the first round, I was a poor responder, zero blasts. The next five rounds, I always got, I had a better response, right? So, like, I was retrieving somewhere around twelve um, eggs, except for round five, which was like a different approach. We only retrieved two, but all of those, I I did get a blast. Half of those were abnormal, but at least. Like that felt like a huge improvement. And it wasn't just that. I also changed my protocol. I went from like a high dose uh, antagonist protocol to a mini Lupron flare. 
And I think that my body really responded well to the mini Lupron flare. Um, so it's hard to say what was from HGH versus just the difference in the protocol, but yeah. And for low stims, the, when you do a low stim, the idea isn't to get like a whole bunch of eggs. You only get a few anyway, right. when you do low stim. So I just don't want people to panic if they do a low stim. They're like, Oh my gosh, I only got two eggs. You're like, yeah, this, yeah you, it's not, the point isn't to get 12. The point is to get right. two to three really good, like quality right. eggs. And for me, it made a lot of sense because I was only getting one blast at the end of the day anyway. So like if I can get one blast with doing, you know, a fifth of the medication, it saves me money. We get the same result. It's better on my body. I, I worry as someone with endometriosis, all of these hormones are flaring you. I mean, all of that estrogen in your system is not good if you're going to ultimately have the same result. So, you know, if you're someone who responds well to stims, then, you know, that's a different camp. But for me, you know, with my response, it didn't feel like it was worth it for to, to flare my endometriosis. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Do you take DHEA how much, or do you prefer testosterone cream? Ah, I've done both. Good question for me. I did the DHEA starting after my first round, you know, got the results again. We throwing everything through the DHEA. We did 75 milligrams a day. Um, I think my second round was maybe two months later, so it wasn't the full three months, but then by round three, it had been in my system that long. Um, and then with round five, when I went to the new clinic, I, at that point they tested my testosterone and it was undetectably low. And so then I, I had to ask them like, this doesn't seem right. Like, is there something we should do about that? And they were like, oh yeah, let's put you on testosterone gel. And so I did a pump and the pump, I remember it being very complicated to get the right dose because like I went to CVS, but they only had like an industrial strength and they were like, don't use that. So then I had to get it from a specialty clinic and I was traveling and it was a mess. But, um, so I know that there are different, um, intensities or like, yeah. And so, I mean, I was on a half pump, but I don't, I can't tell you like how, what the strength was. Um, but I, I took a half pump and I did it, I did it while I was priming and with, with gen five after PRP, they had me go in starting four weeks after the PRP and I did a baseline and then, and I was on the priming and then I went back for baseline three more times, like every, I went back every week for a month <laughs> and they were kept tinkering things. And one of the things they were tinkering is like the dose of, of testosterone I was on. So I know that it's like very sensitive. Like you want to make sure you're, there's like kind of a narrow range that they want you in and the amount of cream that you use can like really mess with that. So that's something to be careful uh, when you're, when you're taking. Um, did you try Depo Lupron for endo? Was it su successful or helpful? I really thought about it. I really thought about whether to do the surgery or Depo-Lupron. Um, and I, I looked at studies and they were basically like very similar in success rates. I was nervous about the long-term long effects of Depo-Lupron, depo like the bone 
uh, density. Um, and I also knew that, you know, it's only effective, you know, however long you're on it, right? So if you're on it three months um, and it wouldn't ultimately, like if your goal of taking it is to get pregnant and you get pregnant after a dose, great. If you have adenomyosis, that's the only thing you can do, right? So like definitely do it or, you know, definitely do it. But I would, if I was in the, in those shoes, I would do it. But for me, I knew it wasn't going to fix that pain I was in. And so I was like, I can either have, I can either do Depo-Lupra now to get pregnant and then do the surgery later, or I can just take the risk and do the surgery now. And I also had in the back of my mind, these stories of women who did the surgery. And then the next month they were pregnant, the unicorns, which is so wild. It happened to me too. And I'd done the research to know that only for stage two, that only happens to one in 12 women that, that the surgery actually helps them get pregnant. So I knew it was rare. Um, but it felt like it was since I was going to need the surgery at some point anyway, it felt like the better path for me. And I don't think we talked about the transfer. Do we, we didn't talk about the transfer. When was the transfer? Yeah, I had a transfer after round four. So round four at that point, I had something like 40 eggs retrieved and only one normal blast from it. Um, and so I was losing 90% of my eggs between day three and day five. And so my doctor's next plan for me was let's try a day three transfer and see if do a fresh transfer and see if there's just, you know, something about the lab environment that we're not able to keep your eggs or your embryos alive, that maybe your body could give them that, that those nutrients or that mix that they need and keep them alive to day five. And then that might be the, you know, the missing ingredient for you. And since I was so young, we weren't um, nervous about like the chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and then I actually had another consult with another doctor who said not only would they do a day three, another day three transfer for me, like that would be their ne next move, but they would also transfer three to four embryos, which just goes to tell you how poor quality mine were, that they were willing to, to try four just to get one pregnancy. Um, but I, at the end of that round, I had, you know, we did transfer two embryos and it didn't work. And we had one blast that did make it and it was abnormal. So that was like super crushing round, round four. Um, and looking back, because at the time I just thought my embryos weren't making it to day five. So those two probably didn't make it to day five. I did feel those implantation twitches um, with that transfer. And so I felt like something was trying. And I, at this point, like, I'm not sure if they didn't make it or if they did make it, they were abnormal or if it was the endometriosis and a, I had just done high dose round. So I was flared. So like, you know, it just wasn't a good environment for them to stick. So I don't know if I were to do another round and do a low dose round now after the surgery, if it would work. Yeah, that's really tough. I mean, 
a lot of different things to kind of yeah. consider. Um, uh, okay, let's see. Um, oh, someone, um, I won't say who, but someone's sending you love. So I'll tell you who it is afterwards. Oh, very nice message. They're like, just sending you love, XO. Um, okay, another okay. question. Love Did them you do- back. <laughs> Did you do ERA, Alice, Emma? Were you positive for BCL6 marker? Um, was the treatment a yeah. success? So I did, when I had my lap surgery, I had them check for like microscopic infections. I'm not sure if it was the Emma Alice, but it was something similar. Um, the pathogen report came back clean. Um, I did do the receptiva test and it was the same day as my lap. I just wanted, like, I was like, look, while I'm under, go ahead and do it. And my thinking for doing it is that if it was positive, I would maybe do the depo lupron in addition to the surgery. Um, and then it did end up being like high. <laughs> like I think it's like out of, it's like a zero to four range and it was four. Like it was like the highest it could be. Um, but my surgeon was like, of course it was high. Like we found endometriosis on that day and we've removed it. And so his advice was not to do the depo lupron after that, um, that I, you know, was ready for a transfer or whatever came next. Um, I did not do the ERA because I had done my research and I knew that for first time transfers, which I was considering myself in that ballpark because with the fresh day three, it wasn't a PGT tested embryo, but for first time transfers, they say that like the study that I looked at, actually people who had done the ERA had worse implantation or live birth. I'm sorry. I don't know that. I don't remember the statistic, but they had a worse outcome than the people who hadn't done the ERA. And this study was done by Shady Grove and it basically offered a free ERA to people who were going through IVF for the first time. So it was not exactly randomized, but I, I felt good about the study and it was hard to pass up because of course, if you only have one or two embryos, you're, you want, you feel like you want to do everything you possibly can, like every test under the sun, but I didn't want to do a test that could do more harm than good. And so that's my personal stance on, ERA, I know people feel differently and I don't want to discourage anyone from doing what they feel is right, but I didn't, I didn't feel like, I felt like it was riskier for me to do it. Okay. And, um, what are your pre and post PRP tips? And did you do more than one round of PRP? I did. I did the PRP in round five with gen five. And then I did PRP with my endometriosis surgeon and I was Which is interesting for- because you did two rounds, one with someone who's super experienced and one yeah. who had never done one before. We'd never done it before. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wild. So I had very different experiences, right? Um, I was awake for the one in Gen 5 and I was under anesthesia for the one in uh with my lap and actually for the one with my lap, because I have vasovagal and I'd already passed out from that morning from a blood prick, they were like, we're going to wait to do, to take your blood for the PRP until you're under anesthesia. Uh So 
that was really nice. Like I didn't even like have to give the blood, um, consciously, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but for you were able the to spin with, it down in that amount of time. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, the lap surgery is a couple hours by itself uh, and that's uh -huh. the amount of time that they oh, okay. made, right? Right at the beginning and then went and spun it down and then brought it back by the end. At the end, because the end is uh, when they, okay. they, you know, they do all the other stuff. Uh, uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's so, right. Because you were getting it anyway. And so uh -huh. they just got a little extra, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yep. Okay. So that was, I mean, I don't know that every patient gets that treatment that I did. Yeah. Um, I, so my experience with Gen 5, I was awake for it. And it, if you go to my Instagram, I have a highlight where I, I give you like my like reaction to like my, the play by play, right. Of like being awake and what it felt like. And it, it did feel like someone is taking a needle and putting it through your ovary. Like it feels intense. Right. And, um, you know, I, if you're really looking to save money and if that's the only way that they offer it, then I do feel like it was worth it. Like, I mean, uh, you, you would do anything for a healthy baby, right? Like it was worth it. Um, but if you have the ability to be asleep, I would do it. And anesthesia nap is great. Um, as far as recovery, both times I used like a, a heating pad and even like the day of, I felt like I needed that. I needed some Tylenol. I think that's the only thing that they let you take. And then the interesting thing was about a week later, every time I felt cramping for a few days and I just, with me, I just felt like that was my ovaries at work, whatever they had done, like my body was responding to it. And it, it kind of feels like stems, like your, your ovaries are busy. Like that's the best way I can put it. And I just felt like that was a good sign, I guess. Um, but it, it, the first time it really caught me off guard because no one prepared me for that. What do you think helped you the most with getting a normal embryo? Both rounds that I got a normal embryo, I had taken a break. So like I had taken two months off before my second round and I had taken six months maybe before my fifth round. And I think because I had endometriosis, all those hormones like IVF will call, cause me to flare. And I think allowing my body some time to kind of go back to its normal state was part of why the, the the rounds that worked worked. Round two, I think switching to the mini Lupron flare was a better protocol for me because Lupron suppresses estrogen. And so having endometriosis, I think that was really helpful for me. So anyone who has endometriosis, I would recommend either Letrozole or Lupron be part of your protocol for that reason to like suppress the estrogen. I think that made a big difference. Um, and then of course the PRP both for round five and like with my pregnancy now that was a part of it. And I think that, that for me, because I had that endometriosis and I know it was right around my ovary that my ovaries have been basically exposed to inflammation for a long time. And so for me, I think the PRP helped clean up that environment and helped me get those healthy blasts. I, 
I actually don't know the, the, I'm pregnant right now and I haven't done the testing yet, but I'm really hoping what we have is healthy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Stay positive. Yeah. Um, are you with a specialist clinic uh, that does mild or natural IVF given your low AMH? So I, with the two clinics I worked with, the local clinic in Atlanta was, they pursued a high stem rounds one through four. I was on 450 gonalef and 150 menopure. Round six, I really pled with them to do a low dose round just because it, it was what would worked with Gen 5. And for them, I think they were like, well, let's do another mini Lupron flare, but let's do it low dose. And for them, they did 150 gonalef, 150 menopure, which was still, I think, a high dose. So they weren't exactly on board with the low dose. Gen 5 had me on, I think, 100 gonalef and maybe 75 menopure. And after day five, they had me stop all injections. They also had me on letrozole. Um, but yeah, so I would say that was a very low dose round. Yeah. So not necessarily a specialist who deals with like uh, low stims, but you're, you kind of. I mean, the been... Gen 5, they, that's, that's their, like, that's how they treat their patients. Um, sorry. I mean, in Atlanta, in Atlanta, you weren't. In Atlanta, no. Yeah. In Atlanta, I wasn't. You yeah. know, I wish that I had found one in Atlanta that that had that philosophy, but I didn't. And I met with several clinics in Atlanta. Um, I met with three clinics in Atlanta and they all wanted to do high dose with me. I think it's, I think the thing that was alluring for them is I have a high andro follicle count. So like to see 13 eggs, they, I think got greedy in a way and they wanted yeah, a chance at all of those. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I can see that. Um, and probably too, I wonder if also your age, cause you're so young, you know, like right. I wonder if they're like, but that doesn't make sense. We like would do that with like right. old crappy eggs, <laughs> not young, right. like not crappy eggs, you know? Like, and even so going into round four, they were going to do another high dose round, but they were like, if we add the HCG, hopefully that's the missing ingredient. And like mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're going to get a bunch of blasts. Yeah. Which who knows how that would have worked. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a year from now you'll maybe. find out. Um, okay. Yeah. Final question. And you can be totally honest about uh, this question. Some guy named Ben wants to know how your husband is treating you. You can be honest. Uh, I'm sure this guy, Ben, will not know. <laughs> he won't be offended. <laughs> yeah. Ben has been really great. Um, he really has. I have, I mean, right now I'm sleeping like 10 hours a day and I just don't have very much energy. And, you know, he's been you know, taking the dog out, very like lenient with like whatever we want to do for dinner. If it's takeout, like he's cooking some, um, you know, he's interesting with us and this pregnancy. I had so much anxiety throughout infertility. And now that I'm pregnant, like as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I just had this like sense of peace come like flow over me and just like this feeling that everything would be okay. I felt like, you know, I treated my root cause and the fact that I was able to get pregnant naturally, I hope this isn't triggering for people, but it just 
was very empowering to me. And so I just felt like everything was going to be okay. And I know statistically, you know, I mean, obviously miscarriages happen all the time, but my chance of a live birth was so much higher being pregnant than just going into a round of IVF. So I felt like, and now that I'm nine weeks, my chance, you know, I've been checking that miscarriage calculator every day. My chance right now is like 96% chance of a live birth versus, you know, I, I think my probability going into any other round was like 5%. Like, it, I mean, just because I've had so many failures. And so that's just game. I mean, that is night and day. That's so different. And so I am so positive right now. And I'm just, you know, ready to like pick out wallpaper and like really jump into, like really jump into this. And I know that like pregnancy after infertility and loss is different for everyone. And everyone is coming at this from a different angle and has a different history. And so I know a lot of women are not going to feel how I feel. Um, but I do, I, I do just feel very at peace in this pregnancy. And he is now full of anxiety. Like we have totally switched shoes and he is now feeling like, because we are where we are, if this doesn't end up in a live baby that I will be so crushed and that like the the fall from here would be so much more devastating than anything we've gone through so far and so it's interesting we've 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 very much switched roles but um that said he's the one who's like let's not post anything let's wait till 12 weeks let's only tell like our close circle and he's he's um more protective of me now. I wonder if it's a control thing too, because it's like before it was like all this like lab stuff and, you know, stuff was, you know, you were pulling eggs out of you and not that we have a ton of control, but it just feels like it's all outside the body. But now that's all happening inside the body. And it's like, oh my gosh, not that, you know, if anyone has a miscarriage, it's anyone's fault. It's no one's fault. Right. But I wonder if it's because now it's like, now you're having to kind of like house everything inside of you and you're just like oh I want to minimize the chance that I you know like I don't know if he feels that way who knows I mean that might be a question for him at some point in time or maybe we bring him on next time (laughs) yeah you know I do think there's a part of it that is you know before everything was happening to me and now you know I've got this baby that's half mine and half his and yeah I think you know, he, he's protective of that baby. Like we, we talked about, you know, we have a family ski trip coming up and Uh he was just like, under no circumstances, are you skiing? Which (laughs) I was like, you know, I'm a good skier. I think I'm a good skier. Like I, you know, I think physically I could do it, but he's just so protective now. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yes. Well, um, how do people follow you? How do people reach out to you? How do people kind of, you know, connect with you. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. So I've got a person or I have a personal Instagram, but I also have my infertility Instagram, which is um, called the stork. That's how I want to be reached. Um, DM me, ask, you know, follow me. Um, I'm also in a support group that I want to call out. It's um, sunny side up NYC. Um, Madison runs these support groups. Um, it's wonderful for anyone who's struggling. I, I obviously don't live in New York, um, but she's so welcoming. She has a virtual format. So um, every other Wednesday they meet. Um, and then she has ones for, she has another one for um, pregnancy after infertility and loss. And then um, like secondary mamas um, or secondary infertility. Um, 
So yeah, uh, that would be another place you could reach me. <laughs> Go to the support group. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put that in the link uh, or put that in the show notes for uh, anyone who's interested in checking it out. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with me today and sharing your story. I mean, there's so many things in your story that I think um, people might connect to. And I think too, in the beginning, just so many things that kind of were, you know, in the back of your mind that kind of popped up. And then, you know, your thought process to kind of getting to where you are today, I think was important to share too. So we kind of talked about a lot of things, touched on a lot of things today. Any last things you want to tell people before we take off? Yeah, I was just thinking about what we didn't cover. And one thing that I did for myself after round four, I, well, two things. I went and got a bunch of second opinions and I wish I had done that before round one. Like I really wish I had gotten a lot of opinions on my case and I might've gone a different way. Um, And now having had the benefit of six, six consultations. Um, And the other thing is, I went part-time for work and I think that a lot of people find that infertility is a full-time job and I did and I was just so consumed with all of the appointments and the research and the, you know planning and the, the the pharmacy just figuring out how to get the meds in time it's it's always so stressful and always last minute and um you know, it, it, and the bills, like just juggling all of the bills, um, is all a lot of work. And for me, especially cause I had this autoimmune disorder, I felt like I had to take something off my plate so that I could manage it all. And I think that's hard for people to admit. I'm, I'm a consultant. I have a very high stress, high touch job. And so it, is hard to step back from it. It feels like it's all or nothing, right? Um, But for my health, I had to do it. And I think it was the right thing. Like I was on a spiral and I took that time. I met with the doctors I needed to. I came up with a plan to, you know, improve all of of these things, to juggle all of these balls. Um, And now I'm in a steady state and I'm back to work full time. But I was probably part-time for six months and I mean, I know not, I mean, I know financial, the fi- financial component is another aspect to this, but I needed that time to ground myself and, you know, get the stress down and just take care of myself, like eat well, exercise, sleep, sleep is so important. Um, and so, you know, for people and my doctor, my therapist, my husband, they all told me not to do it because they thought that if I went part-time, I would spiral and I would do, I would go down these research rabbit holes and it would be worse off for me that mentally, like I needed work. But I will tell you that, no, like it was so important for me to do that just because I just needed to reset, like recenter and, and sleep. I mean, honestly, like sleep is so healing and, and I wasn't getting, you know, near enough sleep. Um, so yeah, that's, if anyone's feeling like guilty for stepping back from work or, you know, like it, that they can do it all and they need someone to tell them it's okay to take a break um, and to step back, even if it's just for a couple of weeks, like this is me telling you, like, take the time and, and really, and really heal yourself. I mean, it, it's a, it's, you gotta, you have to figure out your own root cause and heal yourself before 
you can, you know, carry pregnancy. Like you got to figure this out. Yeah. No, that's an important point. I think taking care of yourself throughout this whole process is so important. And if that means you need to take a little time off work, if financially that's something that you can do. I know several people who've done that, who've, you know, going through IVF, like you said, feels like a full-time job. So I think a lot of people have um, done that and found that that's given them the space and time that they need to kind of like regroup and kind of, you know, feel like they're more their normal selves and stress goes and that sort of thing too. Um, I think a lot of people, once they've done that, they're like, okay, I feel like I'm more myself now. And then, like you said, kind of once you get your bearings and you feel ready or if it's the right time, then you can go back to full time. So that's an important point. So thank you for that. But yeah, oh my gosh, good talk today. Hopefully you'll come back and we'll get an update later on. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. And then maybe we can bring Ben on. We can ask him some questions. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a personality. Oh, <laughs> that might be good then. We'll have him yeah. on. We can, we can ask him some questions too. I always think it's nice to have the spouse on too sometimes. Cause I mean, you know, to get their perspective sometimes it's good too. Yeah. Particularly with some of these struggles. And like um, you had mentioned earlier, when you're kind of not on the same page, you know, how you kind of navigate that. I think that's good for other people to hear too. So if you want to, that's something there's a lot to juggle behind the scenes that people don't really appreciate that everyone's having these conversations. So yeah, I'm happy to, I don't, yeah, I'll see how he feels about it. <laughs> it's a secret guest. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have you on, but yeah, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today and we'll get an update soon. Um, we'll figure out when that is, but I'm excited. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon.